Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrew Keats. What's up, my man? Scott, what's up, pal? And fellow managing editor Andrea Lopez Viafania. Hello, Andrea. Hello. We are also doing a special Friendsgiving episode of the pod, so we have two friends with us today. Christina Kim, a journalist at KPBS. Hello, Christina. How are you? Hello, hello. Thank you for coming in. Did you bring any side dishes? No side dishes and sadly no alcohol either. Oh, that's all right. We'll be all right. <laughs> and my friend Alon Stevens, who writes for The Trace. Hello, Alon. Hey, guys. No side dishes from you. You got some good content. Yeah, though. I am a side dish. <laughs> <laughs> you are a, you are a snack. That. That's why we wanted you. They are both great reporters. They may not have come with any side dishes, but they brought some good content. We'll get into that. Today, though, we are going to review a story we published this week about the deficiency of public restrooms in San Diego and the mayor's office take that we don't actually have a deficiency of public restrooms in San Diego. It comes amid yet another outbreak of a disease spread by human feces. And we'll talk to Christina about her series at KPBS revealing how explicit housing deeds were and how they barred certain races of people from some neighborhoods and how they're still on housing deeds. We'll break that down and explain that. And Alan is going to explain us ghost guns and the peculiar situation armed militias face in this country when they're made up of mostly black people. Yeah. That's all coming up. Stay with us. It's like all the topics you're not supposed to talk about with your family. This is is like the opposite of that New York Times article, like how to avoid race at your Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Yeah. We got race, we got politics, we got feces, we got it all. <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, Thanksgiving, Christina, 
Uh, what are you doing? Are you staying here? Are you doing an actual Friendsgiving? Are you cooking? What I'm going to be doing the cooking. Okay. That's always been my job in my family. So mm-hmm. I am the only American-born person from my family. And I always remember in Thanksgiving, like, we just didn't celebrate it until my mom started taking ESL and citizenship citizenship classes. And then she learned how to make cranberry sauce. And to this day, that is all she wants to make. And she, like, spikes it with brandy. And everything else, yes. she's like, we can buy that made. We can buy... Potatoes that are like not real potatoes, like everything. Like they've fought me before. They make paella sometimes instead of turkey. Uh So I'm the one that always has to bring. Like I've brought. I make the turkey. I make the stuffing, and I make the mashed potatoes. Where's your mom from? She's from Spain. She's from Madrid, and both my sisters were born there. And my dad's from Korea. Okay. So like Thanksgiving was like whatever to them. They spent their first Thanksgiving that they immigrated here to San Diego. In a Denny's, and they were like, "Why is this a holiday? Yeah. We don't understand." I spent a Thanksgiving in Madrid. I was uh, I studied there a year and a half, and they didn't care about it. They they did give me a, a, a little slice of pavo for it, though. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. I spent a Thanksgiving at Denny's. So. <laughs> there you go, uh, Alon. You got any plans? Uh, yeah, I'm running up to Oceanside, and yeah, doing a little Thanksgiving up there with like some family and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, low key. You know, I'm not I'm not cooking. Not doing anything. I'm going up there to eat with the white side of the family. Yeah. So, so you get to. That's the best position to be in in Thanksgiving. To observe and report where other you get people's to, food. Yeah, you get to. <laughs> you get to go. You get to observe. Maybe get a little high. Maybe drink and yeah. fall asleep on the couch. You don't have to do anything else, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not doing anything. My my standing order right now is to bring the whipped cream. <laughs> so I'm like, I. Right, like, yeah. Are you gonna like take that as an order to find some artisanal whipped cream? <laughs> yo, yo, like Miracle yo. Whip off the shelf. For real though, like once that's your only job, it's like your only job. I'm like, should I whip it myself? Like, you should I, whip it Am yourself. I doing this right? I can't just show up with the spray can, right? And then so. you gotta do the obligatory like, oh, can I help clean up the dishes? Or Whatever, right? Sure. They're gonna be listening to this. Yeah, I, I, you already set me up for passing <laughs> out. Like you can alligator arm it, right? Yeah, I don't know. no, I'll help. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll help in, yeah. in, 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 you know, spirit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Andrea. Um, yeah, it's not like a big thing. My family celebrates either, so we're gonna eat some um, carne en su jugo. It's mm. like Ooh. beef Ooh. soup, you know, it's really, really good. So, yeah, we usually don't eat turkey, but I did request mashed potatoes. <laughs> oh, nice. It's got the, the low and slow cooking tendency of, uh, of, a, of a roast turkey, yeah. right? You're still yeah. you're building flavors all day. Yeah. Smell it yeah. in the house all day. Yeah. I'm bringing d- dessert and my little cousin, taking him back home <laughs> since he's been here all week. All right. Andy, you got a bunch of buddies and stuff, right? Yeah, buddies coming in. I have all my family's back east, so uh, we do it all out here. I make the turkey; it's my my thing. Pretty mm-hmm. into it. You do the fry thing, or do you, do nah. you smoke just a roast? Roast all day. Yeah, yeah. Real low. Baste it. Good. Watch do have, football. Do you have any secrets? Wine. Do you have any secrets that you do? That's like, oh, this is the Andy way. Yeah, you get nice big like uh, sage butter. Spread it all underneath the skin, over the top. Cover the whole thing. Uh, and sage butter, and then cover the pan in uh, shallots. So mm-hmm. like 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 a pound of shallots, basically split, and then uh, gives you a nice nice dark brown color and oh. get the shallotty flavor all over the place. Ooh, that sounds mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, I'm coming over. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. I've always been jealous of your friends' givings. I, uh, I, I my, <laughs> never invited. 
no, Scott, it's fine. Scott, Ashley might be listening to the show. You no, no, she understands. Uh-oh. Like, we're, it's always just us and and my parents. And it'd be nice to have a couple other angles. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? A couple mm-hmm. other uh, inputs. Uh, we used I, to have Mario Coran come over a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that helped. Yeah, it's really a holiday that lends itself to me. The idea of like you don't exchange gifts it's in any best. way. That's right. You just drink. You watch football. It's good. You eat an absurd amount. Naps are like part of the 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 celebration. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. It's very good. Yeah. Do you guys do dance parties? Because I feel like all my friendsgivings end up with like very epic dance parties. Yeah, like uh, catchphrase seems to always happen usually. At all the right, end of the catchphrase day. dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That was exactly. I stepped away from that. (laughs) I looked over and was like, "Oh, quaint." (laughs) That's how they get down over there. (laughs) All right. One of my big frustrations is when you go around town and you look in uh, a business, and there's a sign that says. Bathrooms only for customers or no public bathrooms at all, right? You see it everywhere. Every single place has it. And you know why they have those signs, Christina? It's because they get asked a lot for people to use the bathroom, right? Yep. And I'm one of these guys that goes around. We go around town and like I'm always thinking about where the bathroom is. I'm sorry. It's like, <laughs> especially since I had kids too, it's just like, it's it's just something that has to be present. And there aren't a lot of places that have bathrooms. So since 2000, four grand jury reports have warned that the city's inadequate public restroom infrastructure could become a public health threat. That happened in 2017 and in 2018 when hepatitis A swept through the city, uh, killing 20 people. People died. Downtown homeless camps were ground zero, of course. Uh, In August, the county declared an outbreak of a new one, Shigella, uh, in central San Diego, there have been 38 confirmed cases of this de- disease also linked uh, to human excrement. And um, the city has tried to open restrooms downtown. They've failed. They've closed them, closed them at night, closed them during COVID. And new bathroom solutions have been very difficult to find. So our Bella Ross did a story about that this week. And uh, Andy, one thing that really stood out was the response from the mayor's office. They just categorically denied that it was a problem. They literally in the statement said, we categorically reject your conclusion that the city has struggled to address this issue. Yeah, I don't exactly know how to respond to it because (laughs) I walk around in this city and it is so obviously still a major issue. Uh, Now, the other part of the statement that they then get to is they go through what a difficult problem this is to solve and that it can't be handled easily, which sort of seems to acknowledge that it hasn't been solved. Otherwise, you don't even need to bother with that whole thing. Um, So it's it's very strange. And the, the third thing they do in the statement is they connect it to housing. And they basically say, we don't want to be in the business of building public restrooms. We want to build be in the business of building homes because it would be much better and much more of a long-term solution for all the people who live on the streets to just be in homes and then you don't have to worry about their lack of access to places to go to the bathroom or wash themselves up. And while that's true, it's also true that the housing problem is a difficult one to solve on its own and has no clear indication that it's going to be wrapped up anytime soon. And so there's something immensely unsatisfying about just wrapping it in to another 
vastly complicated problem that we don't seem especially able to master and suggesting that it'll be over when that's over. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that makes me feel worse, not better. That makes me feel like we're, we're far away from solving two big issues that present themselves as opposed to, well, we'll, we'll get to this when we get to that. Cause I don't think we're going to get to that anytime soon. It doesn't seem like it. Yeah. And they also in that statement in response to us said, well, and with the County, we have, uh, responded decisively to the Shigella outbreak by putting in temporary restroom. How does that fit with they don't need more restrooms when you when you say like, well, last week we put out a bunch of porta potties to deal with the situation. Like it sounds like you may have decided then that that was a problem. And and uh, porta potties are good for like softball tournaments or you know. Uh, a concert, but if people have to go to the bathroom all the time, it's a, every day. It's a thing. I, Alon, right? Yes. Yeah. I use it every day. Yeah. <laughs> right. And porta potties are like a temporary solution. I think is what you're getting at. Yeah. They're good for events. They're good for moments. But what you are also saying is just, in, this is a symptom of a larger problem and you're hearing, Hey, let's solve the problem, but like not, but ignore the symptom. And it's unsatisfying to hear, Hey, there's a greater issue, i.e. housing, but let's not deal with all the symptoms of not having enough housing. And the second thing that I'm also hearing is just, this isn't just a homelessness issue. Every one of us uses the bathroom. Everyone has been yeah. shopping or walking somewhere and it becomes this painful 30 minute battle to try and find someplace or like go and use a Starbucks bathroom or be forced to buy something. And of course, if you don't have money to buy things, then you're not going to be able to use any of the bathrooms that are available. Yeah, I kind of stop and think about and just squint. I've been quiet here, just kind of observing this. But like when you tie using the bathroom so fundamentally into this like housing thing, I don't know. I just squint and I'm like, using the bathroom shouldn't be like a privilege tied to, to rent land rights and all that other stuff. It's just weird, man. Like we're a tourist city. We have people, they visit here. It's in our best interest to have bathrooms for them. We have people that unfortunately are going without, you know, homes right now. They need to use the bathroom. I need to use the bathroom. Business people need to use the bathroom. And the alternatives, right, are so bad, right? It just doesn't seem worth it really at all. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just think using the bathroom is kind of just a fundamental like human right. It's like a humanitarian crisis. So you can't just, yeah, just kind of just throw that out to this other deep-seated issue that you can't solve. Yeah, I think um, also some of the, you know, experts that Bella spoke with mentioned that, like, it's costing the sitting more to put these temporary things and then, you know, they do the hardcore deep cleaning of the streets and uh, power washing, um, but they could just try and open up more restrooms or, you know, take care of the restrooms that they have. A lot of them are closed right now because of the pandemic. So we have them, but some are not accessible right now. Yeah. And I mean, to everybody's point, it this is absolutely an issue that is closely tied with to homelessness, but it is absolutely not an issue that is limited to homelessness. If you exist in and around this city at any point, whether it's because you go to the beach, because you go to a park, because you go out shopping in some tourist district, your fundamental human conditions don't cease to exist during that time until you get to go home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th that issue is felt more acutely for parents. It's felt more acutely for pregnant women. It's felt more acutely for all kinds of people who have to go be humans out in our city that that need, you know, they have yeah. basic functions that that occurred. At the, and and it's ironic that we're in this time where we're trying to sell ourselves as this like maturing urban area. 
that's going to be more walkable, more bike friendly, more transit friendly. All things that mean we'll be out and about in the city more often and make those needs more acute and more pronounced well, that need to be presented by physical infrastructure. They just opened the trolley line from uh, Old Town to University City. And so the argument is you can take the trolley from the border all the way up to University City. Well, I didn't do the actual charting, but I think that's got to be an hour and a half or whatever. Mm -hmm. What are you supposed to do? If you're going to if you if right. we say we're you're going right. to use we want you to use public transit to get around this city there's uh, I mean I don't know about you guys but you get to 45 minutes an hour like things start to get a little nervous <laughs> <laughs> or I start to get a little nervous and I want to know what's what's up and there is nothing you you and and so yeah I feel okay cuz I can I can stroll into a Hilton and I can walk back there. Nobody's going to say anything to me mm -hmm. to go take care of what I need to take care of. But, I, you know, I, I recognize that that's, that's a certain amount of privilege that other people don't have. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying, though, is kind of like like crazy, though, because correct me if I'm wrong, because I know I do this. I, I navigate, right, mm -hmm. my day sometimes around like, oh, is there a public bathroom Absolutely. around this pathway? So you have this city right now where you have people living inside of it that are like, I am limiting the way I travel, you know, through and in, in and about the city because the lack of bathrooms. And then, you know, like you said, there's people who I know this is true as well, go out and they're like, I got to go. I guess I'll just go back home. And you drive all the yeah. way back home. Yeah. And you're just like, whoo, that was a close one. Wasn't there a theory? And that's that, horrible. There was a theory mm -hmm. that President Trump never wanted to be away from his, his place. So he would always <laughs> right. fly back from right. across the country. And, and I know we're like already in gross territory. But when we're talking about disease spread and stuff yeah. like that, there is this other scenario that obviously is going on where people, I, I hate to say this, are ill and sick, right? And you are sick. And then suddenly, right, are you supposed to you know, vomit, defecate or whatever, just in a park, right? It just happens. This is life where humans and stuff like that. So you're having a scenario where people are sick. They really need to get to some sort of bathroom to try to contain that illness, that virus, whatever is coming out, right? And they don't have a place to do that. And that's just a poor and sad scenario that's happening here, like in America, like first, you know, first rate city, right? So, and it's really that the city's not built for everyone, right? Because some of us can go into the Hilton and use the restroom, and it's no problem. You're not even going to get asked. And then you have Jesse Evans who gets arrested real. for going to the bathroom because there is no publicly available bathroom in La Jolla, you know, this really predominantly wealthy area. And so it's just about is this city equitable and do we have the infrastructure so that people can move around it and experience it the same way? Yeah. And the answer is and, no right now. Yeah. And that's why I pointed to that original thing with like the privilege, because just as like a black man, just real talk, like there are times where I have to use the bathroom and I can't just hop in an acute like boutique shop, right? That's like meant for white people. Like they don't offer the same bathrooms to different people in this country. It's just real. Yeah. So it's just like, that sucks if you're out here and you really got to use the bathroom and you're just a black man, right? And, and they, always, they always say like they opened up these small, uh, like Portland Loos, like they did downtown yeah. and people, you know, besiege them that they're just these big centers of activity well that's because there's nowhere else to go yeah you can't just look yeah. at a situation like that and say boy that didn't work out actually it did it worked too well that's the problem it needs to be less in demand yeah it's it's a, a like a classic nimby problem in that you build one and it becomes the concentrated place of all of these costs associated with it in the case of the portland lose based on where they were it was you know allegedly prostitution and drug use and that sort of thing happening. But 
Yeah, I mean, it's one bathroom built in the middle of East Village uh, at that time. And if you spread them out, if you add 100 throughout downtown as opposed to one, and they were reasonably expensive, but if you then you spread the cost, you know, the the negative externalities associated with it spread across all of them. And it doesn't become such a burden for the the business owners in that immediate area or the homeowners in that immediate area, because instead of one, it's over 100. And it's Instead of seeing it that way, the costs associated with that one Portland low became evidence that this could never work. And then it just gets taken out and we never build another one. And in the location where one of those was also built, it was at the uh, park and market development project. And the developer, when they uh, agreed to build that project for UC San Diego, said that they would build a new public restroom to replace it. And when time came a few years later for them to actually deliver on that because the project was about to open, uh, they asked for permission to not do it after all because they said there was uh, now going to be a few years from then there would be a new public bathroom in a park that hadn't been built yet four or five blocks away. Mm -hmm. It's like. Like it would be the worst thing in the world to have one that you agreed to build anyway at that place and one at the at the the park that's going to be built a few years from now, a few blocks away. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, throw in like it seems just like a poor investment overall for just future demographics, because as we move towards a more aging society mm-hmm. um, and we have people out there who need more bathroom availability, it's just what's going to happen. This problem is probably going to end up getting worse unless they decide to really dedicate to just overall more bathrooms. So we wanted to have this Friendsgiving, and and it was I hate to admit it, it was Andy's idea. It's pretty good. It's fine. We'll see. I guess. I mean, having guests on a podcast is not the world's most creative idea. <laughs> All right. So, uh, <laughs> and so Andy and Andrea both uh, chose friends. So Andrea, we'll turn to you. Uh, why did you want uh, Miss Kim to join us today? Well, I've been a fan slash stalker of <laughs> Christina's for a while. I think as soon as she she said, oh, thank you. <laughs> as soon as she announced on Twitter that she was going to work for KPBS, I don't really know why it popped up on my Twitter feed. Like we didn't follow each other before, but um, it did. Like, someone must have retweeted you. And I was like, oh my gosh, I slid into her DMs. And of course I was like trying to recruit somebody for NHJ, yeah. <laughs> but um, also just like huge fan of, of her work. And um, so I wanted to invite her because this series that she recently, um, you know, produced is, is really amazing. And I think it just speaks to a lot of the history and a lot of um, why our neighborhoods look the way they do. Yeah. So what did you find? What did I find? Well, I first started on the story when I started back in April. NPR approached us and was like, you should look into racial, racially restrictive covenants. So those are things that you find on your deeds, on subdivisions that were really popular in the early 20th century that pretty much said only white people can live in this house. Sometimes they were a little more explicit and they said nobody of African descent, nobody of Asiatic or Oriental descent. And I really jumped at that project. My home where I grew up is in the suburbs of the Bay Area. It was like built sometime in the 1950s, I believe. And I remember being in third grade and my dad showed me this deed and it said no orientals and my dad's Korean and that just stuck in my head. So the minute I was offered the opportunity to look into racially restrictive deeds here in San Diego, 
I just knew it was going to be an important part of understanding how race and housing has shaped this region. And that's exactly what I found. So there was a study of a sample done that looked at housing deeds in San Diego City from like 1910 to 1950. And every single one of those homes had a racially restrictive deed. And that's what we found writ large, like across the country homes had these restrictions. And it's really easy to say like, well, how much were they enforced? Yeah, what's a deed? Let's talk about that. A deed is like, well, a lot of them were built in subdivisions. So a deed of your home is just kind of gives you like the restrictions of what happened. So some of it is like, you can't build a fence this high. You need to keep your gardens this way. But this was part of saying like, who can actually live in your neighborhoods? And they really started to become more popular when racial zoning was outlawed in 1917. So then real estate developers and housing developers, right when real estate agents were becoming professionalized, they were like, okay, great. We want to make this as a marketing tool and we want to like entice people to move into neighborhoods. And one way of doing that is by promising them that they can have homogeneity in their neighborhood. And that at the time was seen as that's the right way to do it. Having segregated neighborhoods is healthy and it's good for your home values. That's actually a myth that they created in order to sell homes, and that was debunked early on. But it's a myth we live with today. And so racially restrictive covenants are one part of housing discrimination that worked in concert with redlining, with racial steering. But what it did was bake race and racism into all housing in San Diego and across the country. I remember, so I wrote a story a year ago about uh, single family zoning. Mm -hmm. It was totally around the same time when 1917 uh, racial zoning was outlawed, and quickly cities started creating de facto racial zoning, which was just zoning. They they used uh, at the time just using residential zoning at all was a way to it it, it didn't have the explicit quality that uh, racial covenants did or that racial zoning before that did, um, but you could use it as a as a tool to keep certain people out. And I remember when I was researching um, old. Um, Union Tribune articles or Union articles from the twenties, there was one specific ad that was placed from a developer in a subdivision, and it was uh, the developer was saying, "We support the city of San Diego's attempt to adopt a zoning ordinance." This was it was like a big topic of, of the day. It was like a, the m- biggest thing that the city of San Diego and the city of Coronado were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. And this developer said, "We support the the need for zoning in city, but if you buy with us." You don't. We already have it, and they were openly uh, advertising the fact that sure, of course, the city of San Diego should adopt this zoning ordinance that'll give it some de facto segregation power. But if you go to this private development, you don't need to worry about that because it's already in place through these racial covenants. Right, and those pamphlets were so popular, and they yeah. sometimes it was explicit, and sometimes it was coded. It was like we are yeah, creating a yeah. community for the right sort of people, the people of class of of means, and it was always coded like what they actually meant wealthy and white. And yeah, talking about crime, they would do, they, it would be a, a code word they would use, yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you found you I mean you found a bunch of people who discovered that they had covenants on their on their house. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there's like a psychological effect of that. What else what else did did the people who, you know, discovered what was in the deed of the home that they're living in at that time have to tell have to say to you? Yeah, well, I spoke to someone named Michael Dew. So he found it in his home and I think he wasn't surprised, right? He's a black man. He's like, I'm not surprised this this racist shit exists and that it's in my home, right? Like, mm-hmm. what a surprise. But I think it just made him realize that, wow, my grandparents couldn't have bought this home. And, you know, both of his grandpa- 
grandfathers were were vets. They were, you know, they were Marines, one in Vietnam and one in Korea. And I think that that kind of rattled him. And then it made him start digging into his own history. And something that he said is like, you know, these are not conversations that we have at the Thanksgiving table. Hey, remember when we couldn't buy in that neighborhood? Hey, remember when we were the only black family? And he was saying like the psychology of it is your family is just trying to survive and they're not trying to pass down those stories to you so much so because they want you to know that you're amazing and that you can succeed. And so there's a little bit of protecting the next generation. So for him, discovering it and having these conversations with his family, he's like, there's no way I want this off my deed. Because if I hadn't found it, then it's just a way of erasing history. And I need to know why, you know, Southeast San Diego is still predominantly black. And while the housing prices are increasing there, they're still lower than they are in, say, parts of North County or La Jolla or, you know, wealthier areas. So for him, it was a way of kind of grappling with that history and starting conversations and also just making sure that it's not forgotten in the future. For other folks that I spoke to, like a couple named Kiona and Ken, they're a biracial couple. She's black. He's white. They wanted it removed immediately. They're kind of woo-woo. Like they have like Palo Santo burning. She's an Ayurvedic counselor. And for them, it was just like the foundations of this house are rotten if this language exists. And we have to kind of strip it clean in order to build the future we want. So those are kind of the two kind of arguments I heard. And it's really about the politics of remembering, right? It's about what 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 do we remember and how do we choose to remember it? And for some people, it's striking it out. And for other people, it's keeping it there. It's kind of like the monument conversations that we've been having for the past few years. You uh, mentioned, Christina, that your dad showed you something similar for your home. While you were doing this reporting, was there something that just like really hit home? For me? Mm-hmm. I think what just is striking for me is that we're having these debates about critical race theory and really understanding and talking and deconstructing the way that systemic racism exists. That seems to be like a really hot topic for folks that we would actually want to learn that. And I think in the course of reporting this out and learning about different communities, whether it's Eden Gardens up uh, in North County by Rancho Santa Fe, or just like learning more about Southeast and the way that, you know, redlining cut off funding to certain parts of San Diego, And then understanding where we are today and seeing those very same inequities played out, I think that's always going to hit me, right? Like it matters that only less than a quarter, like 26%, sorry, so 26% of black San Diegans own their home. Meanwhile, white San Diegans, over 50% own their homes. Like that's a staggering number. And I think we hear data all the time. We hear numbers and we start to normalize it or we start to think that individuals are responsible for the outcomes that we're currently experiencing. But I think when you go into history like this, it can sound kind of like, oh, you spent some time in the archives and why did you look at racially restrictive covenants? They're not even enforceable anymore. They're, you know, they were right. outlawed in 1948. Why does it matter? But again, 1948 is not that long ago. That's, right. that's a couple of years before my dad was born. Uh, you, Alan, we talk about this a lot, this, this question of systemic racism. And so right. the, the concept is like, yes, there are people who are bigots, who are racist, and they act on that in daily life. That's one type of racism that seems to be what everybody wants to assume that racism right. actually is. But what we're talking about here is that there was actually a system in place that enforced racism and wasn't that long ago that it was that it was being enforced and i don't think people like when they talk about like the crt debate and all that that they're really grappling with 
that 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 is what it is attacking. That's what it's talking about. Right. Is where is that present and what is being done, or how has it been de- deconstructed? But it still seems like a confusion that people have. I mean, so many white people think that you know it's very easy to kind of just chalk up racism to this kind of maliciousness, right? But when you know, for and for reporters of color, especially who are kind of in this space where we're looking at these inequities left and right. Um, I always kind of come back to it. And I think we almost always come back to it and say, well, a lot of this stuff was by design mm-hmm. and it was very implicit. And the, and the, and your ignorance, right, is rested upon these very intricate designs that were, you know, and, and, and people try to point back and say, oh, that's a really long time ago. Right. Um, like my parents, right, when my mom was born in a time where they made her drink from a different fountain. I'm sitting on a podcast. Like, that's not that far. That's my mom, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not that old. And so, you know, when I was born, my parents were interracial, right? And there were still laws on on record, right, that no one had struck down that said uh, miscegenation and interracial marriages were, and this is like in the 80s, right? So, so yeah, I think that like post-George Floyd too, when we're coming back and doing this type of reporting, it's so shocking to white people, but really we're just kind of putting the gravity back in the room, mm-hmm. right? So there was some talk in your piece about how to uh, how people are like unraveling it or what they're doing, what steps they can take. What 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 happens now? What what do we do with this information? Well, I think for readers, I've heard a lot of feedback where people are like calling their title company. They want to understand their own housing deeds. They want to understand their own privilege or they it's mostly white people, I must say, who have reached out to me. That's the gravity (laughs) who want to understand like, hey, how am I where I am? What what what? What's on my housing deed? Why does my neighborhood look that way? So I think next steps, I mean, there are a lot, there's a law in the book that's going to start in January 2022, where most counties now are going to have a system for more easily finding that language in your deed. When you find it, when you buy a new home, your real estate agent, your broker, your title company is going to have more of a say in in showing it to you and saying, hey, this is the process for removing it if you want. And then there's going to be, you know, counties, uh, county registers are going to have indexes that are easily searchable. So I think what we're building from here on out is a greater understanding of just how far reaching and where these racially restrictive deeds were all across California. I think that's the hope to really understand. All right, Andy, you jumped right away. You knew who you were going to invite. It was our friend, Alon. We've known Alon for a long time. What made you want to bring him on? Yeah, is this a second appearance on the pod? Yeah, man. Third? Second? Yeah, I think I invited myself, technically. <laughs> I think I was just texting you, just on some stuff. You were like, yeah, we could talk about this if you want. Yeah, like anytime. Like into microphones. <laughs> uh, well, we are lucky here in San Diego that uh, the Trace's West Coast correspondent lives here in Ocean Beach. Uh, so I talk to Alan a lot about uh, stories that he's working on, stories that that come across uh, my transom. So Trace is a nonprofit newsroom like us, uh, but they are nationally focused on guns in general. Um, and guns are sort of, I think, it's, a, it's an interesting project because it shows all the different ways you can take one beat. How many, you were telling me beforehand, how many reporters you guys Yeah, have? I think we got like, I think it's like 13 to 15 or something now. Yeah, we've got, we got freelancers. And, and the thing is, we still always are like, we want more gun reporting. Yeah, I mean, if you, you had know? one newspaper, if a newspaper had one gun reporter, you'd be like, oh, that's a really narrow beat. 
Meanwhile, you guys have an entire organization yeah. with 15 people. Yeah, and, and, and there's other and there's other people, too, that cover guns for other outlets. And it's like I was telling you before, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Because um, it's so interwoven into just America. You know more about guns than anybody I know. You know oh. a lot about guns. Well, thanks, I guess. I <laughs> guess that's you, a weird thing to know. How, but. Well, I mean, you, you're a guns you, you read You report on guns. Yeah. So it's appropriate. <laughs> How did you like what is your your way in? Because, you know, I, I think it's a topic that a lot of journalists and people involved in politics have opinions about. But it's like inch deep, mile wide opinions often. Right. Right. I mean, so I, I, I come at it. So I, I liked guns or I'll say it had interest in guns before I became a journalist. Right. So um, I worked in law enforcement. I was in you know, two branches of the military. And so in that world, right, firearms are very normalized and, you know, and I was very familiar with them and how they functioned. Uh, I, I never knew I would end up being a journalist. And as a journalist, right, I still was just a producer, right, in, in radio. But what happens is, is that obviously news of the day keeps on ticking off and people had, had kind of picked up on the fact that I knew a lot about firearms. And I had turned that into, you know, now I guess a career where I investigate gun violence and arms trafficking. Would you say you come at reporting on guns differently than you see from, you know, say general issue reporters who pick up the topic? I think so. I mean, first of all, like, you know, it's very interesting because uh, and I'm just going to critique our own industry, but like, you know, it's mostly white, it's mostly coastal and it's mostly people who, you know, come from a pretty educated background. Those happen to be the same people who never touch a gun or even are allowed to touch a gun. If you're coming from New York or say a place like San Francisco, it's very hard to even have had hands on experience with a firearm. Um, I think that fundamentally changes you. I, I, I come from Texas, right, where guns are just super normalized there. And then coming from my background, you start viewing things a little bit different because guns are something that you're legally allowed to have in this country. They're regulated. But, but you know, in Texas, you look at a gun almost like a car, right? And that is a huge swath of, of America. Yeah, we had a 100 education course in eighth grade in Utah where we had to shoot. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's yeah. a huge swath of America. So I think when you... When you look at guns kind of from that way as like a gun owner, as someone who can has seen the kind of whole breadth of gun culture across America from the people who really want restrictive gun control to people who are like firearm absolutists, who are just like everything should be unregulated. Um, I think it kind of puts you in kind of like an interesting thing where you can kind of squint and see see all sides of the picture. Well, a few a few months ago, I called you because the city was starting to have this discussion about regulating ghost guns. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what yeah, they're talking yeah. about. And you you spent 35 minutes with me on the phone and I felt like 100% smarter about a lot of things, not just ghost guns. Well, that's my specialty, man. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it. So <laughs> so they did just pass that ordinance. Right. We, do, we ran a story the other day about how weird it is, whether it's going to be enforceable, what it actually means, why it was needed in addition to the laws that already exist for unserialized guns, guns that don't have those serial numbers that can be traced, the name of your publication, the trace. Yeah. So um, tell us what what are what is the United States dealing with that people don't understand right now about these uh, ghost guns? All right. So 
from the get-go, let's just explain the guns that are in circulation. Sure. That's the best way to explain ghost guns, right? So so the majority of the weapons in America that are in circulation right now got their start from a federal firearms license holder, right? And under law, they're required to do two things before they release that firearm to the first purchaser, essentially out into the wild, right? So the first thing is, is that they have to run a criminal background check to make sure that the person they're releasing this weapon to is legally allowed to own and possess this firearm. All right. The second thing that they do is they create a paper trail. They fill out something called a form 4473, which has some identifiers on it. It has the make, model and serial number of the firearm that's being transferred and also some identifying information of that first purchaser. They do that. So when or if that gun shows up in a crime scene down the line. Uh, authorities can have an investigative lead, right? And that can do a couple of important things. One, it can tie the weapon to an individual for that immediate prosecution. But secondarily, you can take that information in the aggregate and you can see arms trafficking patterns. So you could see like, oh, why is it that 10 guns from these crime scenes all tied back to this one gun store or this one purchaser, et cetera, et cetera? Or how these five guns from this gun store or person showed up three states away. Right. And so you could see these types of things like arms trafficking corridors and stuff. Well, ghost guns essentially circumvent that whole chain. Right. Um, first of all, they're made without serial numbers. Right. And they, they kind of use they use an allowance in federal law. Right. So all these guns, they have to be released through these federal firearms licensed dealers, except if you're an individual who wants to make a, a, a firearm at home for individual use. If that is the case. Right. Um, you don't need to have a serial number. And this is all federal law, of course. And um, you, you don't have to do any paperwork right on it. So what happens is, is that this is very advantageous for criminals who want to A, get a gun without going through a background check and, and, and B, get a weapon that if it is used in a crime, it's very hard to tie back to them or who they bought it from. Right. So if you're an arms trafficker, right, this is just like ideal weapon to use. And now you add in states like like California, like New York, where it's already hard to get weapons. Right. Because we have ancillary and extra systems uh, that, you know, extra steps that we have to go through, it even becomes more advantageous to, to go to a ghost gun if you're a criminal trying to get your hand on certain types of firepower. Because a gun is just a machine of different plastic and metal parts. Right. And so you can now more easily than ever put those together yourself. There's a couple ways to make some of these homemade, unserialized, uh, you know, firearms. And that's what they're really kind of referred to by law enforcement. And the federal uh, federal law enforcement um, arena, they, they started calling them privately manufactured firearms, which is kind of this new umbrella term because it's picking up all sorts of speed in different arenas. Extremist groups are going to it and all sorts of stuff. Okay, let's just back up and let's just talk about how these things came. Because the original question was like, well, what is everyone missing? Well, there's this interesting history about this, right? About how these things were allowed to even occur. So the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, they make a lot of determinations on what classifies and constitutes a firearm, right? And so what happened was, is that back in the 90s and early 2000s, um, it was very hard to make a functioning firearm that was worth anything. And so the ATF really didn't care about these individuals who are off in the woods who would take weeks or possibly months to make this gun that hardly ever functioned. What happened was, though, is these companies started prodding the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, um, and explosive with these kind of parts kits, right? And they were coming to them saying, well, this gun is, is not necessarily assembled, but it's pretty close to it. 
does this fit regulation? Is this a gun? Is this not? And so there was this back and forth that went between these kind of civilian companies that are trying to develop these parts kits and and the ATF. And eventually this determination kind of came through where they're like, all right, for the receiver of the weapon, this is the part where the fire controls uh, fit in. This is the part that's regulated, uh, the part that's required to have a serial number. You can essentially have that about 80% complete before it starts falling under regulatory laws. So what did the gun companies do? They created kits, right, that were 80% complete. They're called 80%. They're called 80% receivers. And then you finish out the remaining 20% of the development yourself at home. And what that did was, first of all, it lowered the barrier of entry. It made the materials a lot more accessible. So if you're trying to make a receiver, you know, uh, in the early 2000s, right, you'd have to make it out of metal to very specific um, measurements here. It's like plastic. You can use common tools, you know, and you can make one in a matter of an hour or two. Right. And so this has kind of bloomed into this entire, you know, industry as well as uh, use among the criminal underworld and traffickers. All right, so let me ask two simple questions that I imagine are going to have relatively complicated answers. One, is it true that ghost guns are proliferating in large numbers in cities across the country related to crime? And two, is the city of San Diego's attempt to restrain that activity or other similar city attempts likely to do that? Okay, very, very... um complex question um um so okay let me start Start with with, is it true that that ghost guns are flooding cities and are being used in crimes um yes but with some caveats right so first of all for all the reasons i just said um these things are very advantageous to criminals um at the very same time it also just needs to be pointed out that for the majority of the country if you are a criminal that's trying to get a firearm um, there are still plenty of other ways that you can get yourself some some high firepower out there, right? Uh, typically, the people who I see that are more interested in this, again, are in states like California, where there are kind of a, a state addendums to federal gun control that make it harder, right? That that creates uh, you know a necessity to go through one of these routes. Um, at the same time, right, there is a virality to crime. More people now know about this. Um, it is becoming a popular thing. I'm not going to lie here, but stories like this, uh, um, criminals read and listen, and they understand this. And I've looked through a lot of federal court dockets, and there's undercover tape of these guys talking about the loopholes and the laws and the things they know they can get away with. And, and they sell these weapons in the underground predicated on that. They sell them saying, hey, listen. You buy this weapon off of me, you can you don't have to go through a background check. If it's used in a crime, they can't trace it back to you. It commands a little bit more money for that on the street. One of the things you've always helped me understand is how pivotal capitalism is to our culture of firearms here. That right. it, it fuels everything. It knows how to fill the gaps. It knows how to market. It knows how to expand and it knows how to resist re- regulations so it can continue. To. Right, right. And, and, and so 
and and what you were saying is this right so so um is it is it growing well one of the things that we also have to take in consideration right is the types of people that are attracted to these types of weapons right are probably people who are more aggressively pushing towards criminal activity and use so for that reason we do see a lot more law enforcement now targeting their efforts right to go towards ghost gun users because there is this belief that if you're going to go ahead and get a firearm that's untraceable without background check, you're probably about to use it or be involved in some higher level type of crime. Now, when we talk about can San Diego specifically tamp that down, um, I, I don't believe so, because when we look at measures for counter arms trafficking laws, and that's what this is, it's kind of been rolled out as this ordinance that's like we're banning the, the, the sale and possession of this. But really what this is, is a counter arms trafficking law. And if you want to start or, or, or stop, I should say, the movement of these types of weapons, you need to have a probably more expansive system. Right. So as, as pointed out in the story you guys published, um, you know, we should say by James Stout, freelance writer. Yes, yes. And I've spoke to him actually about yeah. this and when he was working on this story. And, um, you know, it's very easy to go outside of the county. It's very easy to go outside the state. Um, it's, it's, it, it, there's a whole ecosystem, right? And so what, San Diego is simply the outcome, and they're seeing the outcomes of this large ecosystem. Mm. And so it's very, very hard to deal with that. The solutions that probably are going to be more kind of proactive in this space are going to be at the at the federal level. Um, we've seen, um, well, first of all, let's just talk about just policy, okay? So um, for instance, uh, a couple gun control groups and um, cities have started suing some of the manufacturers or one of the big manufacturers, Polymer 80 of the parts kits. Um, here's the interesting thing. Most gun companies are protected under PLACA, the Protection of Lawful um, Commerce and Arms Act, right? Which really kind of absolves gun companies from being sued for their products being used in criminal activity. Well, because these companies technically um, are not selling guns, quote unquote, they have eschewed some of the protections oh. that the traditional gun companies uh, have. So they are now liable for lawsuits and some of them are being sued on that front. Um, the other thing is, like I said, at just the federal level, people are now, you know, the Biden administration has now signaled to the ATF to go back to those original um, kind of decisions where they said, hey, this 80% receiver thing is a gun, not a gun, to go back to that original determination to go ahead and close that and put that under a federal regulation. Stuff like that will probably tamp it down and just stop the companies who are making the parts kits who just who made it so easy and cheap to get it. And then two, right, that's a counter arms trafficking kind of measure that is, again, more holistic because it makes it harder f to source these types of weapons from just a nearby state or nearby county. Mm -hmm. And so something else you often talk about in your stories and in conversation, I don't know if it uh, necessarily applies with ghost guns, I assume it, it does, is your focus on equity under the law. Uh, right, right. Uh, racial equity as it, as it pertains to gun control. And gun yes, rights. yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know, is there an angle on that with ghost guns? Y there is. And um, so one of the things that I, I've, I've been coming out and saying a lot, which is, you know, um, the thing is, is that 
all right, I'm just gonna have to call it. You know, white people love policy. They really love legislation, right? <laughs> and one of the things that they don't understand that is, is that, like a I'm sorry. Yeah, have, man. Like, white people love policy. <laughs> it is, you know, and I look at the policy and we focus on policy and so much of the gun control efforts are, are, are focused at the policy level. And nine times out of 10, the, the way they want that policy to be enacted is through law enforcement, right? And the reality of as being a criminal justice reporter, someone who's worked in law enforcement as well, is that you know the criminal justice system and the law enforcement system does not apply laws equitably, right, across, across society. So many times what happens is, is that we have these laws which are often predicated by things like uh, mass shootings that, you know, harm white victims and get a lot of media attention, get a lot of legislative attention, right? But when law enforcement gets these laws down, trickle down to them, they use it to do what they do best, which is go ahead and target the communities they're already targeting with it anyway. And so what happens is a new tool for them to go about. Exactly. It's another tool. And that's how law enforcement really does kind of view um, laws. Right. When they add them to the penal code, essentially, they're adding another tool to the toolbox for them to go ahead and do what they they already do. Right. So, um, you know, when we. When we put these laws, when we enact these laws, right, we, we, we try to enact them under these schemes of like, these are going to stop the flow of arms in our societies and communities. But when they are applied, typically they're applied to things like predatory traffic stops that were going to happen anyway. And then you find someone who has a status on them and then it's just another charge that stacks on them. That doesn't really do anything to uh, stop the flow of arms in communities, right, at large, right? And, and you can actually see this a lot in the prosecution strategies, okay? You don't see a lot of arms trafficking investigations conducted by local law enforcement, even though they have the ability to do that, even though they have support and cooperation from the ATF and federal authorities. You don't really see that a ton being done. It's that type of work that actually stops illicit arms flows. Mm. Well, one of the things uh, we also want to talk about is related to this sort of um, disparity, and that is uh, this question of what we're seeing across the country with with armed militia groups, groups that uh, have been become more visible, obviously been visible for for several decades now. But in in particular, we just saw last week the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin, a minor who showed up at at a protest uh, with a, a visible firearm, um, and and you know the the consequences of 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 what happened when he brought that to uh, to this protest. What you did, along with our reporter, former reporter, Will Carlos, uh, he he and you paired up on a, on a story about another side of that coin, which is armed militia groups that happen to be made up mostly of black people. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and do they experience the same sort of um, passes that uh, that these militia groups get when they go to these public uh, events and things like that. So, what did you f- find, and, and how did that work out? We found we found the obvious. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, um, no, it was a difficult story to report. So, yeah, we did a story about the the Not Fucking Around Coalition, which is a black militia that that really fomented um, after the Ahmed Arbery shooting, and they got a lot of attention for a couple reasons. One, um, they were black, right? And they, they showed up in this moment where they're kind of unexpected. We had not seen that type of imagery 
and that scale since right the Black Panther movement of like the '60s and '70s, so which provoked gun control work in yes in the California. Act. Yeah, yeah, we could talk about that. And um, and so you know, so it, it, it commanded a lot of attention um, immediately, but also at the same time, uh, it commanded the attention of federal law enforcement. Um, and, and so we had the, so in fact, is this group that had been marching around showing up at these, these protests of, of, you know, extrajudicial killings by law enforcement of, of black people. And, um, essentially, uh, they got deplatformed. They, their organization was ran almost singularly through a, a leader named Grandmaster Jay, who's this character and figurehead within itself. And uh, he was charged with a federal firearms charge, uh, a charge that, you know, we spoke to different former prosecutors and have analyzed it and it really kind of up in the air on if it was a good charge uh, or not. And but what they did was with that charge, they essentially uh, took away his Facebook and social media rights, which which was the way that they were uh, mustering and mobilizing and essentially deep platform and kind of uh, shut the group down before it before it really got a lot of energy. Mm. I think what worries me uh, about the, the armed street presence is that we are heading inevitably towards armed street conflict. Like- yeah, street war is what, you know, uh, when you talk to extremist experts and things like that, uh, and when we were talking to them about, in fact, you know, one of the things that they were remarking about is that in the last year or two, um, we have seemed to have a normalization, right, of simply walking around with long guns and body armor on the street and and these groups are now getting closer and closer to to um finding each other on the street right and that can have all sorts of cataclysmic activity and so yeah you know it is very dangerous and one of the things that um you know we saw the kyle rittenhouse shooting but the other thing that doesn't come up is that in a lot of these groups there's is a lot of ancillary violence when they show up at these protests there is a lot of negligent discharges and things like that they're just general criminal you know dangers right <laughs> just a bunch of people walking around the street with guns mm-hmm. so um and yeah and we have seen some normalization and you know my beat i was telling i was telling andy earlier that my beat you know is is they're now titling it emerging violence because we're beginning to kind of follow these types of things where we see these protest movements and kind of open armed groups maneuvering out in society. And mm-hmm. it's something that people like the Southern Poverty Law um, and ACLU and these groups that kind of monitor uh, extremist activity are very concerned about. Mm. Well, happy Thanksgiving, huh? Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. I'm a fun guy, but damn, like y'all. No, that was extremely informative. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I guess like what are we talked about policies? We talked about things. What are you watching as far as next steps in either? You talked about that civil suit. Um, uh, that seems fascinating. What other kinds of steps might actually change the narrative, or is it is it on the path that you just described? Um, the narrative of of what these people running out in the street killing each other. Yeah. Um, um, I really don't know. You know, I, it's it's very hard to say. What I say at the beginning of most every panel, college, whatever thing, when I show up to, is I say that you know America is one of the most prolific uh, arms developers and proliferators in the world. And if you were an alien that came down and looked at us, it would make sense why we would have a lot of gun violence. We historically uh, make a lot of guns uh, militarily. 
um, just because of our high military presence, it is within our best interest to continue arms development. And one of the things that people don't understand is that um, we try to kind of think of arms development as military and then civilian, but that's not the truth. Uh, Colt manufacturing, Glock, they they survive off of military and law enforcement contracts, right? And um, and smaller companies do too, and they get a lot of research and development grants. They get a lot of uh, tax incentives to exist to try to develop weapons for war, right? But what happens is, is they develop these weapons and a lot of these best technologies eventually trickle down into the civilian market. Um, you know, you have things like advances in magazines, advances in rail systems and these types of things. And these were originally developed by people who were trying to, you know, win bidding contracts. And even if you lose the contract, you can offset some of that expense by simply releasing it out into the American public. So we, like I said, we have this ecosystem that is very much tied to, to companies, to, to our military strategy. And so when we look at gun violence in America, it is something that's so woven into our DNA that unless we do something fundamentally different. I mean, on all facets, right? Like militarily, yeah. industrial. I, I don't know if we would ever really do too much with our violence issues. Yeah, that's what's so hard is that every time there's something awful that happens, people are like, we need to change this. But that sentence means unraveling an incredibly vast industry, system, government, policies, everything that it's just, it's un- almost unimaginable. Right, right, exactly. And, and so when we talk about you know, policies and stuff. A lot of people look at, you know, democratic leaders and things like that as if they're going to institute gun control. But we also have to remember that a lot of these people are sitting in districts with constituencies that work for these these companies that are developing arms and they're doing it for potential use for Army, Navy, Marines, et cetera, uh, police departments, et cetera. And that's going to be a very hard thing to try to, you know, create policies and stuff that may hit those businesses on that front as well. So I have to ask though. So if you're like listening right now, you're learning this all for the first time, maybe in your car, driving to your Thanksgiving. What do you say to folks who are just kind of entering the conversation? You know, they're reading the headlines, they're reading ghost ghost gun ordinance. They're hearing you now do like a capitalist critique of (laughs) an industry that is seemingly very hard to dismount. So what do you say to like a first time listener, you know, who wants to be engaged on this topic? Like, what do you tell them? I'm just wondering. I, I tell people this and, and I was I was saying I was saying this. One of the things that I do advocate for and, and when I talk to new gun reporters and stuff like that is I say, like anyone who's like, I know everything about guns is, is wrong. We've had so much obfuscation. We've had so little actual research in it that it really is kind of the Wild West out here. Right. I, I, I think. The big thing, though, is to kind of look and, and understand that for some slivers of America, this is something that is very, very common and normalized. Uh, I think we put a lot of political baggage to it, but anytime you have a sliver of America, right, that owns these things, right, and um, you're talking about taking physical property sometimes out of people's hands. And this is true. And and, and I'm not talking about gun confiscations, but for instance, a ghost gun ban will turn people into overnight criminals. Uh, And we are seeing these types of things happen. And that tracks with a large part of the American public. So I tell people when they are thinking about this, right, to just kind of think about the full spectrum of gun owners. I think we're so very much kind of focused on 
either the firearm absolutist that kind of speak to, you know, we want guns and you hear that through the National Rifle Association. And then we think of gun control. But the reality is that I think in America, there's all these different middle grounds of regulation and opinions and um, and they kind of run the gamut. Mm-hmm. And so any policy that's going to be enacted does need to have collective buy in from from those people as well. Mm-hmm. Well, fascinating. Alon Stevens. Great conversation. Thanks yeah. for coming in. Thanks for having me. Christina Kim, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Andy, whatever. Yeah. Andrea, great to have you. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, and have a, a great Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. This was awesome. You set a precedent for a great conversation we're going to do again. So thank oh, you. Sick. Thank Go. you. Thanks for listening to this special Voice of San Diego Friendsgiving podcast, the most popular public affairs Friendsgiving podcast recorded in San Diego. Keep up with all of our stories and investigations and takes on local news with The Morning Report. That is our most popular newsletter, and you can get it at vusc.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego, Andrew Keats, and Andrea Lopez Villafaña are our managing editors. Our Friendsgiving guests this week were Christina Kim and Alon Stevens. This show is produced by Nate John, and our technician is Adam Greenfield. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.